And welcome back to Australia's longest-running and most infrequent Doctor Who podcast, 42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And as we battle the offspring of the Omni Room and known as the Omnicrom, we are broadcasting from the most locked down and now recently freed capital of Australia. And as Bernard JKD said on Twitter about our last episode... Great discussion regarding R2-D2. Both sides represented, which Twitter has failed to do, incidentally. You convinced me that there is a strong chance that it will be good and vibrant. And in this episode, we, like the 45th president of the United States are going to lie through our teeth and answer some views that have been posed to us by our wonderful and quite frankly cruel listeners that force us to contradict our sane opinions and thoughts we've long held sacrosanct regarding our favourite TV program. But before we start, hold on, I think I'm experiencing a bad case of flux. That's right, homies. We are back uh, slightly later than we planned. Unfortunately, uh, life has gotten the way over the last couple of months, but Rob and I have reconvened to uh, have a chat about Doctor Who and uh, get this long-awaited episode out. So how are you, Rob? I'm good, mate. I'm just quietly uh, sweating uh, the uh, the excess kilos off. I'm, all I can say is uh, I'm in a rural retreat and it's quite hot and I've had to turn the air conditioning off so people can actually hear me and not the rattle of the, uh, the air con above my head. But... Um, Yes, mate, it's uh, all good here. How are you down uh, south? Look, we're okay. Uh, put this one, there's no way I was going to record this in the car like we did last time, hence why uh, I, pardon my French, lost my shit. <laughs> we're reading at the Kit Paddler news item due to oxygen uh, deprivations. Yes, we have received a cease and desist from the Peddler estate, Yes, which we put into the circular <laughs> file. We will continue to... Uh, laugh at those who have predeceased us because frankly we're alive and they're not for the moment anyway unless we also drop dead outside our home <laughs> i hear omnicrom uh, has has the smell of vinegar was originally found lurking in a in a lockup in wigan uh anything could happen from there mate anything could happen we need dr phil to inoculate us <laughs> inject me phil inject me inject me mate inject me with that vinegar running yeah. through my veins as bon jovi didn't say mark uh, phil's love is like bad medicine <laughs> Or bad vinegar. (laughs) Now, again, we come back to a uh, circular topic of missing episodes. Now, we both had the, uh, I use the word pleasure, in inverted commas, of uh, watching the Galaxy 4 reanimation, reimagining, stick figures slapped on a screen. What would you call it, Rob? Well, Mark, if if by pleasure you mean clamping the alligator clips to my hairy testicles and putting 50,000 volts through them, uh, then that's definitely pleasure, mate. (laughs) We did the entree of the uh, docos and then went straight to the meat and potatoes for the main uh, event. You plastered the words missing episode over anything related to Doctor Who and I'll be all over it like a goddamn rash. Like this heat rash is developing in my crotch, actually. <laughs> but, um, geez, we've gone blue tonight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the microphone name, <laughs> Yeti Blue. <laughs> I, like no doubt you, Mark, uh, experienced the missing uh, episode doco relating to the return of uh, Galaxy 4 Part... Was it Part uh, 2? Part 3. Part 3. Bad fan, which was nice, inoffensive, sort of skirted around, you know, the fact that rumours were running rampant in the lead up to the announcement of it, unlike what they were saying there, that we kept it very quiet. You may think that you kept it quiet, fellas, but you certainly <laughs> didn't. I was quite taken with Ralph Montague. I'd, I'd, I'd heard the name, but never heard him, uh, seen him or, or, or hear him speak. So he, he was quite authoritative and interesting to listen to. Mm. The actual fellow, uh, Terry Bennett. Terry Bennett. Uh, the actual fellow who found the episode. I mean, interesting. He's got his own little, you know, cinema in, <laughs> in his backyard. I mean, the great thing about Britain is the, 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 the enormous amount of eccentrics who, who just, you know, fall in love with niche things i mean i reckon every second place or every second house in the in the uk is just it's just got an oddball or an eccentric probably a serial killer as well but um he was a, del- a delightful fellow to, to to listen to and his love of, of film and television is uh, obviously very evident by the way he's sort of turned his hobby into a into a real life thing and mark what did you make of the making of because i haven't had a chance to watch it yet oh, i was certainly better than the one that did for evil of the daleks it's interesting the animation is better on evil than it was on galaxy 4 but the doco is better on galaxy 4 than for evil so if they could maybe potentially switch it around it's not going to happen but anyway what are you going to do exactly but it's great to see toby <laughs> haydoke uh, back in front of the camera it's workmanlike but it, it's elevated a lot with uh, with mr haydoke and uh, so actually it was shot at peter purvis's uh, very nice house as well it's nice to see so mark does peter purvis 
have a palatial premises that he resides in? It's a, it's a lovely Tudor, Tudor house, Edwardian house. Very nice. Actually, he could have filmed Evil of the Daleks, there, to be honest with you. But oh, very good. He wasn't wearing a mask either, so it was all good there. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mark... Mm. The um the release uh, the animation release has come in black and white yes. and uh, colour for you modern people. Mm. Having watched most of the Galaxy Four animation in colour, mm. all I can say is I can't stand it. It sits very badly with me. Um, having to endure the animation in colour, it's just too colourful. Mm. So I I know why they do it. And you got the black and white anyway, so stop complaining, Robert. It just <laughs> I don't know. It just pops too much. It doesn't feel right. It. it Doctor Who is a, is a 60s black and white you know, show. That's how it probably should be experienced. Yes, I could flip the disc and watch it in black and white if I want, but it just doesn't work for me, uh, a colour. Uh, what do you think? Well, I actually watched them all in colour. I preferred the colour visuals. What? If the BBC had the money or the uh, the gumption, can you imagine the trout in the air all being shot on 16mm film, like the Avengers or something like that? So I sort of have that sort of view on it and saying, yes, it could be black and white, but I've seen the tally snaps occasionally and I've endured it in black and white and audio. So if I'm going to watch it again, I want to give it a bit of a uh, a bit of an oomph. So I'm happy to watch the, the colour. But what gets me is the varying uh, degrees of quality in animation styles depending on the release. You, mm. When the highs are high, the lows are low, and I'm talking about Weber Fear Part 3 there. And this <laughs> is somewhere in between. I mean, they got it right for Evil, they got it right for Fury, but they got it wrong for Macro, and I think they've got it wrong for this. I mean, Galaxy 4 is fairly pedestrian anyway, so they needed to do something to lift it. Mm. I don't know, Mark. It, it Just like the marriage rates in, in Alabama between brothers and sisters being t- too high, <laughs> it just doesn't sit right with me, unfortunately. So, Hello, mother-uncle. <laughs> No, but I mean, look, you know, they're gradually working their way through Doctor Who's missing back catalogue, mm. whilst the animations can, as I've you know, said previously, can only ever be uh, an approximation of the real deal. I suppose that there's no doubting that there are people out there who eagerly look forward to them, and there's no doubt that the people who are in, in, engaged in, you know, the animations and the making ofs and all that sort of thing, they're dedicated and, and in the main, they're talented, so... I mean, you can only sort of... But they're not hurting anyone, and I, th- I suppose it, it fills, you know, gaps in people's shelves that they've long pondered over. Exactly. And the trailer for The Abominable Snowman's just come out. That looks fairly okay. Personally, I think the animation looks a bit stilted for a lot of the releases. I know Evil was, was greeted with almost universal acclaim, but uh, animation for me is Saturday morning uh, kitty cartoons in the 1980s, and I, I, I can't escape that. It's, it's all on me, obviously. Mm. I just can't escape it that it's a, it's an inferior replacement, but it is the only replacement we are realistically going to see for a lot of these things. Correct. Look, for me, it's an easy way to enjoy watching a stories that I've. Um, it's been a bit of hard work to watch them either. Tell you some reconstructions. This is fairly easy. Just put the disc in, off you go. I mean, Evil just rattled it along. That's probably because the story is very, very good as well. I mean, look, there were some very mm. bizarre moments when Maxtable was uh, on the cliff trying to throw the Doctor off. He's going kill, kill, kill. That looked a bit South Parky, bit of jerky movements. But on the whole, it was, mm. it was a really good productions. I mean, it was that rumor that BBC America pulled the funding out for the animations. Mm. I don't know whether that is still going to happen or whether Big Finish will plug the gap in because obviously they're executive producers and that and they'll just fund them and because obviously they're making money and maybe they don't need the BBC America capital, which obviously shows that the show's probably on the wane there anyway. I think it's on the wane mm. everywhere, <laughs> looking at latest ratings for it. Yes, we, we, we're not reviewing Flux, of course, Mark, because we don't review stuff except we've spent the last 15 minutes reviewing Galaxy 4. But anyway... That's classic, though. We're happy to talk about classic. We are. We love it. And just uh, pivoting off missing episode uh, animation chit-chat from before, in the last week or so, Paul Venezis, who uh, helps moderate uh, the Missing Episode Forum, um, intervened in a rather spiteful discussion between a couple of posters uh, regarding uh, Phil Morris's, the extent of Phil Morris's searches and also the potential for uh, missing episodes to actually reside in the Iranian television vaults in Tehran. Um, well, I won't go into the particulars of the discussion between the two individuals, but it, Paul was sufficiently moved to uh, make uh, a couple of uh, interventions. Um, so I'll just read out a couple of things that he, uh, he wrote, but you can go to the missing episode forum under the Doctor Who thread and have a look at this. Paul said that Philip Morris has worked hard over the years and has succeeded in locating nine missing episodes of Doctor Who, three missing editions of Harry Worth, three missing series one Morecambe and Wise show programs, uh, an edition of Talk of the Town featuring Mark's favourite, The Scaffold, uh, a lost edition of Citizen James, the earliest surviving episode of The Basil Brush Show, uh, the only example with uh, Rodney Buse as the presenter, uh, a unique performance of Days by the Kinks in that episode, an episode of The Rag Trade, and a 16mm print of Steptoe and Son, 
uh, for which they've previously only had a poor quality camera copy, plus, of course, two missing editions of The Sky at Night, uh, which Paul sort of said that people tend to forget uh, the extent of uh, what uh, Phil has managed to find. He goes on to say that he'd like very much to make a documentary about what Phil has been doing, uh, and he has discussed that with him. It may happen, and he'd like it too very much, I think. Um, He does think that Phil has gained specialist knowledge through his work with foreign archives and will have a lot to say, I'm sure, if we ever get it off the ground. And uh, he further goes on to say that while Phil uh, was as thorough as he could be in Nigeria, that thoroughness can't be applied to every country he's visited, nor can it in fact be completely applied to Nigeria itself. What is interesting about Nigeria is that various episode hunters, including myself, ruled out Nigeria as as a possibility for further recoveries after what happened in 1984. And by that, he goes on to say, Ian Levine then announced that if there had been anything else left in Nigeria after he uh, was instrumental in finding those three missing stories, he, Ian Levine, would have found it and therefore there was nothing else there. And, uh, And Paul goes on to finish that little section by saying he was wrong, being Ian Levine, as were all of those who believed him. And then he rounds uh, that commentary out by saying, uh, but could there realistically be anything there? And the there is Iran. Paul says, yes. Doctor Who was screened on the American channel in Iran. This is obviously pre the revolution. Uh, It was shown in English and there were still episodes of the series sitting on the shelf at the TV station in Tehran in the early 2000s. I suspect all that they were sent are still there. And I say this despite having communicated with them via Fiat, which is a an archival uh, organization and them stating that they no longer have any material. So uh, a couple of interesting things uh, there with regards to Paul's uh, thoughts on uh, Phil's search and what might exist, what may still be out there to be found despite the the, the thoroughness that uh, Phil has indicated he, um, he, uh, he went about with regards to his particular searches. And then in Iran, of course, uh, there is a there is a fellow on Facebook who's running around saying that he's um, with the BBC's OK, Mark. He's made contact with the uh, TV archive people, uh, and there's the in our in Iran, and there's the possibility that we may know by the end of this year whether Marco Polo one and two uh, exist because they were sent from New Zealand back in the 60s audition films or audition tapes. So it'll be interesting to see whether that where that goes. Probably nowhere, but interesting nonetheless. So basically, um, Paul Venezia has been in contact with the Iranian archives there, but by fiat. Yes. There is no direct comms. It's through a third party. And as you said, it could just be like uh, what they said in Nigeria. Nah, mate, you got nothing and that, that was it. Boots on the grounds anyway to sort this out, Rob. And I think if we have some sort of GoFundMe to get Paul <laughs> over there and also potentially have some extra money for lawyers to get him back out, the GoFundMe starts now. Well, I mean, certainly Paul himself hasn't given up and, and where possible, he you know more than willing to um, assist or help direct. I mean, he just posted on the Missing Episode Forum uh, in the last six or seven hours before recording that he had located a, um, a better copy of Episode 7 of the Daleks uh, in the BFI. Oh. The, the print had been misfiled back, perhaps into, back, as far back as the 1970s. Um, so there's the ch- you know, for the f- future Blu-ray releases, uh, Season 1, there's a, you know, a chance of a better copy of, of Episode 7 because apparently it's, uh, it comes from a sort of a poor quality print or recording. Um, so he's still looking, and I think he's also prepared to work through, you know, people who are willing to, you know, um, go the extra yard, perhaps, you know, boots on the ground, as it were. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. The search for missing episodes is definitely not dead. And, of course, they just found that footage of the Easy Beats from Top of the Pops sitting on somebody's shelf in Australia. Yes. It's amazing the stuff still turns up decades later. And I think that's going to be the case for decades to come, Mark. I mean, I suppose the, at this point the great hope is film collectors, and as long as, you know... People like Venezis and, and, and Morris uh, keep tabs on them as they slowly approach the gates of heaven. Those episodes won't end up in landfill, hopefully. Uh, you know, no. Kaleidoscope and organisations like that uh, you know, have made contacts and maintain those contacts and keep those contacts so that the family doesn't throw out what could be you know, real gems. The last thing we need is those prints being liberated and then being held against their will in other warehouses elsewhere. Oh, yes. Well... Because we're going through that at the moment. What a bit of a change, don't we? Well, best not think about it, mate. Otherwise, I'll end up crying. Exactly. And now, before we get into the main topic, let's do some rapid-fire rumours. So we've been inundated with uh, with the rumours about uh, upcoming uh, potentialities. Uh, so we've just we've we've sifted through them. We've culled the more libelous ones. No, not really. And uh, we present them for your... 
Uh, entertainment, Mark, is that would that be correct? Digestion and regurgitation. Exactly. That an actor was approached to play the 14th Doctor, and he was a number one choice. He was quite keen on it, except that he wanted to basically have a year-on-year deal instead of having a five-year deal, which is what they want to do. And then he also had a look at the internet, looked at all the uh, <laughs> Doctor Who articles and... Maybe some of the bile that sort of stretches across the internet regarding Doctor Who and said, uh, sod that for a game of soldiers, I'm not going to do it. Mm. With the actor who was subject to that particular rumour uh, is well known? He appeared in a uh, MCU film. Mm. That's all I'm going to say. Are you saying Chris Evans, Mark? <laughs> no, certainly not him, but uh, another actor associated with a, a Marvel role attached to the role as well. Scarlett Johansson? That'd be great. Got to be better than Black Widow, isn't it, really? You know what, Mark? I've watched probably two or three of the MCU movies. They're starting to be same-same. That's the problem. Yes. What about the next one, Rob? This uh, fills my bit of heart with some gladness. Uh, RTD wouldn't be opposed to having an old doctor do one of the specials or seasons. Paging Mr. McGann, maybe. Did you know that Paul McGann is 64, Mark? He looks... Fantastic. I watched that TV show Annika, and he was in a couple of episodes of that. Tell you what, when I get to that age, I like to look as, uh, what's the word? Well-preserved as him. Well, you do look magnificent, though, Mark. Oh, bless you. The COVID kilos. Are, <laughs> they're proving harder to shift at the moment. I won't be the first one to say it, but I, I think McGann has in his attic uh, a portrait of himself, an old, broken-down, grotesquely obese wreck of a you know, portrait and he's just, you know, skipping the light fantastic at the moment. He looks magnificent. So, yeah, bring him back. Bring him back for any of the specials, any time. Or Tennant. Tennant will be back like a shot, mate. Don't worry about that. Yeah. One of the other rumours, Mark, is that originally uh, RTD and Stephen Moffat approached the BBC, uh, obviously to take it over once Mr Chibnall and co. had, uh, had departed. Uh, the idea was to produce it through Hartswood, which I think is Moffat's uh, production company, uh, with those two as creative consultants and maybe someone like Mark Gatiss as head writer. That didn't work, did it? No. Well, can, <laughs> can you imagine Davies and, and, and Moffat as the creative you know, consultants? I mean, did, are their approaches necessarily compatible? It would be an interesting combination. Mm. Whether that demarcation in terms of creative ideas, yes. where it begins and ends, would be quite a hard to pick. But also, it'd be like watching the original Let It Be movie, Lennon and McCartney just going <laughs> loggerheads. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing. It's interesting though that they were obviously they they could see that the show was in trouble and wanted to uh, both step in to try and um, even the keel, as it were. In terms of uh, upcoming DVDs, they are looking at. Potentially next year doing uh, seasons 20, 21 and 11. They're all ready to go, apparently. Uh, 22 as well. And, of course, season two is going to be the big one. And basically, they're just going ahead and doing them and not waiting for any sign of life from Phil. They're just going to go ahead and start pumping the Blu-rays out now a bit more frequently. And with the black and whites, the gaps are closing. They'll just fill them with animation or in part of season two, it's just going to be a tele-snap reconstruction of the Crusade. They've long said about the Crusade that there's too many characters to animate, but is that right? Uh, that's what I heard. That seems a bit odd, but uh, all right, I'm not I'm not working on them, and I don't have, really have a grasp of what sort of you know time frame it takes to to, to do the animation. So uh, maybe that makes sense. I would have thought Rain of Terror had you had more characters or similar character numbers, but mm. um, oh well, we'll see what happens to that. Maybe this could be a, a money thing. I don't know. Basically. The Davison DVDs are all going to be out, and that's it. That's it. The 80s Doctors, are, they've actually been done the first. I think they're probably easier to restore than you know a lot of the 70s ones. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Also, another interesting tidbit is that Big Finish recasting one of their recasts. Stay tuned. We're being very cryptic on that one. I think we're all rumoured out now. Rob, should we uh, crack on and start lying through our teeth? Absolutely, Mark. Absolutely. <laughs> So what I did was asked our wonderful uh, Twitter followers to pose us some scenarios or questions that they know we would completely disagree with, but we'd have to agree with. The pain, Mark, the pain. We were absolutely inundated with lots of scenarios from lots of our listeners. I think they really hate us, Mark. They really sort of hit a nerve in terms of what they knew to ask us. Obviously, we have to agree with the question posed. Whatever left we have of our morals and scruples, we have to throw out the window. Put the case forward where we actually do have to agree with something that we absolutely oppose. It's going to be very interesting putting these scenarios together. And I think after this, we're going to have to have a cold shower separately, of course, to uh, remove the uh, the taint and the stain from ourselves. <laughs> 
And while you're laughing like a madman, Rob, I'm going to start with the first scenario uh, which I'm going to pose to you, which is from our good friend Andy Taylor, mm. not the former guitarist of Duran Duran. He poses this statement, Rob. Horror of Fang Rock is the worst Tom Baker story. Andy knows how to go for the juggler, doesn't he? What a monster you are. He's actually gone for the juggler, just ripped it out, really. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Andy, for posing that monstrous question. I don't know how I'm going to cope, but I'll, I'll do my very best. And listeners, I do go on a little bit, but just bear with me. Here we go. We all love Uncle Terry. A great man, despite his tax problems, his small-c conservatism never shines as brightly as it does with the horror of Fang Rock, which, disturbingly for me, is clearly a text designed to undermine the UK's adherence to its then-recent accession to the EEC. As a maximal pro-European integrationist, worried that the UK has left itself prey to the vicissitudes of an increasingly dangerous world, the disgraceful warnings embedded within Fang Rock remain a clear signal that the elements undermining the EU project played an extremely long game until their day of triumph, or disgrace if you like, ensured the exit of the UK from the EU. All the signs are there for anyone, well, mostly Guardian readers, with eyes to see. <laughs> Dix uses the alien Rutan as a metaphor for the hordes of Eastern Europeans coming across the border to steal your British jobs, people. I mean, look at the imagery of the Rutan craft crossing the channel and crash landing. This is an example of the invading Eastern European hordes and their terrible driving skills. <laughs> Going further, clearly, Dix believes that each of his characters embodies a great British trait or class undermined by the alien other, embodied by the gibbering Rutan with its alien greenness and its willingness to kill anyone to force the assimilationist, low-paying jobs down the throats of proud Britishers. According to Dix, who never let death get in the way of his prophetic abilities, Never has a floppy-head British PM shouting inanities from a lectern and betraying long-held conservative principles at every turn at a horde of baying fellow travellers at Tory conference been so right. For instance, look at poor young Vince Hawkins, that exemplar of noble British youth. Not for him the glory of the trenches in Flanders, but instead an ignoble death at the hands of our Rutan-slash-EU friend. The death of Vince is clearly an example of how the Europeans will come along and steal the hopes and dreams of British youth, swindled from them by low-paying Polish plumbers willing to do any job, leaving the youngsters of Britain to drink and bash each other to death outside their local pub. Then look at Adelaide, murdered by the Rutan. Her pure Victorian slash Edwardian virtues are ravished by the Rutan. Has there ever been a worse slaughter of English maidenhood depicted on BBC One? According to Dix's vehement anti-EU tract, her fate is the fate of all British women, to see their husband's manhood cut down by being cuckolded by Italian Lothario's intent on betting anyone in the dress. And think about Reuben, that epitome of the elderly of Britain, who gave their all for Queen and Empire, who brought civilization with musket and sword to Africa and Asia, themselves, according to a clearly frothing-at-the-mouth Terence, cut down by the advances of science and technology. Their lives and all their accomplishments snuffed out by an insane Romanian aged care nurse intent on smothering all elderly bedwetting patients in their care. Reuben's death is a warning to all aged Britons out there. You can pay your taxes all you like, but when the EU slash Rutan comes a-knockin', you're for the high jump. And of course, the final insult, according to Dix, is the fate of Lord Palmersdale. The mere fact he has to mingle with the common swill in the lighthouse is evidence of the undermining of the class system that the EU and the Rutan represent. Surely, Dix says, venting his spleen, Palmersdale has allowed a little light insider trading without his wealth and dreams being strangled slash electrocuted by the busybodies of the European Central Bank with their quote-unquote fair dealing and commitment to price stability and keeping inflation low. Let it rip, I hear Uncle Terry say. So that's it, folks. Not only is Horror of Fang Rock the worst Tom Baker story, it's the worst Doctor Who story full stop. A pay-in to Brexit fantasies, it was complicit in a generations-long ploy to remove the UK from its rightful place of subservience at the foot of the mighty EU and lead it blinking into the light of global Britain and Singapore on the Thames. And just because Dix wrote this 44 years before anyone ever heard of Nigel Farage doesn't make my commentary any less true. How do you feel after that? It should be called the Horror of Farage Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. That's a thesis, Rob. That is a thesis. I don't know that it makes sense, but it is a thesis. And since I'm being forced, you know, led by the nose to make these outrageous comments, I thought that I might, you know, make it all worthwhile. So let's just get this right. In the Tom Baker rankings, at the lower echelons, you've got Horns of Nymon, Underworld, and right at the bottom, the Horror of Fang Rock. Is that correct, Rob? That's where it needs to go. I mean, Andy Taylor has told me to do this, so do it, I must. And uh, it hurts, you know, it really cuts to the quick, but what can you say? It's terrible. <laughs>
it's a bit like Ace Ventura in the shower, mimicking the crying game. I can just see you at the bottom <laughs> of the shower, plunger out, trying to remove the taint from your mouth and your consciousness. Oh, that is a very funny scene. I can completely uh, transphobic, but hilarious. In this day and age, you need to laugh somehow, Rob. I'm dreading what uh, you're going to serve up for me. The moment's been prepared for, Rob. It has. Do you want to read out the scenario that uh, has been posed to me, please? Now, yours, Mark, comes from uh, Mark Cockrum of the uh, All of Time and Space podcast. And his uh, stiletto-like dig between the ribs is, Kef McCulloch should rescore all of classic Doctor Who and replace all of the original music, which should all be destroyed Okay. Buckle up, people. Music has been part of our planet for so long that it's part of our DNA. We all know the greats, Rob. Mozart, Gershwin, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lennon and McCartney, Black and Lace. But none of those artists have left the imprint that Kef and McCulloch has. The Muzak scores had accompanied so many Doctor Who episodes until Kef fired up his Roland S50 sampling keyboard and then drum machine were frankly bland, nondescript and so unmemorable that it's no wonder that most of them got wiped or as the BBC say, lost. As I knew that back then they didn't have the awesome technology that we take for granted today to go back, completely rescore every Doctor Who episode from 1963 until 1989 so it was much better to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, some heathens criticise Kev's scores as being bombastic, inappropriate, refer to him as the hammer. Very mature, mate. These people are not only wrong, but they have no musical taste whatsoever, Rob. How much better would key scenes from the series be with Kev providing incidental music? When the Doctor first meets the Daleks with that puny high-pitched whine. Imagine it with those wonderful... Never date. Tomb of the Sidemen with stock music. But those trumpets at the end of Space Adventure sound suspiciously like. The score of the Sea Devils apparently is called innovative. My ass is about as innovative as the top 40 charts of today. How much better would the rise of the Sea Devils from the ocean be with more. City of Death, nothing says Paris and romance more again than a drum machine with a backing band singing which is actually predicting that Tom and Lala were going to get hitched in a marriage that will be as big as Chuck and Dies and about as successful as Katie Price and Peter Andres. How much drama and da feels could be extracted from an overall 11 year old at the end of Earthshock when Adric's death is felt for at least 20 seconds by the TARDIS crew with care, subtle and mournful lament, just like he composed for the death of the Sixth Doctor. When he was attacked by the killer exercise bike at the beginning of Time and the Rani. Kef was not only innovative, he was an innovator. Stock, Aiken and Warman, who churned out so many hits in the later part of the 80s, really owe Kef a large credit and slice of their royalties as he used his work as an inspiration for their extensive output. Kef wanted to leave Old Blighty, and despite having some of the most stringent border security policies in the world, he was welcomed into our great country with open arms and open keyboards. And his mission? To vastly improve our musical output. Not only has he enriched Doctor Who, he is enriching the population of Queensland. So next time you're up there and you hear someone performing an acoustic version of Here's to the Future, stop and buy the guy a beer. <laughs> Does Kef uh, score Battlefield, Mark? Dun, 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 dun. He did. <laughs> yes, because I was watching uh, the last episode of Battlefield and uh, his music was... Uh, spurted all over the uh, the visuals it was um well memorable memorable is the word isn't it it's subtle i give it that it's sort of like you know pirates of the caribbean and that film was like dun, 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 dun. he was kef was the innovator he was doing it before that he had it he had it all sorted and look and also jnt when he did the Sharda video in 1992 he didn't call deadly dudley back he called kef back he said, Kef, I want you to do it in the style of Deadly Dudley. And he did it. And it's been reused ever since. <laughs> Obviously, he's doing something right. So, all praise Kef the Hammer McCulloch. That's just wrong. You, you can't say that about Kef McCulloch. He is not the Hammer. He is the innovator. He's the Mozart of his generation. Oh, like. absolutely. Oh, I feel sick. <laughs> <laughs> Someone get that man a bag. <laughs> I feel cheaper than normal. <laughs> All right, uh, hit me with my uh, next one, Mark. The scenario I'm going to pose to you is this from uh, Danny. 
He says, mm-hmm. the Cybermen only had one good and creepy story. That's true, Mark. Silver Nemesis is a classic. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're definitely off the meds. <sighs> yes. I'm, I'm loving the freedom to just rant at the moon. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So, well, Mark, that is true in actual fact. Spare Parts is and remains the most genuinely creepy and disturbing Cyberman story in the Doctor Who canon. Nothing in the TV series comes close to it, mate. The visual imagery of the Cybermen from the 10th planet do come closest to meeting the mark. The sheer primitiveness of the technology the Mondasians inflicted upon themselves, the flimsiness on the one part and the cumbersome nature on the other, painted a grim picture of a dying race right at the end of their tether, using whatever means were necessary to survive, no matter how brutal. But that is a visual marker, and subordinated to telling an exciting story at the South Pole, which, aside from an acid question from the Doctor, doesn't dwell overly much on what the Mondasians have done to themselves. On the other hand, threaded through spare parts is a systematic examination of a people, of a society, who are very nearly us, being forced step by unwilling step to give up their humanity on the spurious grounds of survival. What a lot of Doctor Who writers forget is that the Cybermen aren't tin soldiers like they are in the new series, but they are the broken down, decayed, diseased, sickly remnants of our counterparts on Mondas who did everything they could to survive, sacrifice their emotions, sacrifice their their, their biological future, uh, and slave themselves to cybernetic systems. And nothing in the TV series comes anywhere near to meeting that horror, as does Spare Parts uh, from Big Finish by Mark Platt. Now, Platt is masterful, as writers of televised Cyberman stories aren't, in the smaller details that paint a larger image of terminal decline on Mondas. The patheticness of the Mondasian Christmas celebrations. Uh, the use of augmented horses demonstrate the utter collapse of the society, forced to a subsistence level of existence, yet with a fragile veneer of technology. Mondas is a ruined hulk, a corpse shuffling around an open grave which doesn't know how to die. And Platt's depiction of his characters, particularly Yvonne, her earnestness, her devotion to her family, and the ultimate sacrifice she makes, all point to the continual failure of the TV show to capitalise on the true horror of what becoming a Cyberman really is. It's all well and good for the Doctor to talk about a well-prepared meal, as he does in Earthshock, but it's utter triteness when compared to the horror of Yvonne weeping on the floor of her living room, as her father looks on in horror, reveals the total incoherence of any production team since 1966 to get a handle on what becoming a Cyberman really means. So, in other words, you didn't like Rise of the Cybermen then? Rise of the Cybermen (laughs) is... Because that was a homage, wasn't it, to Spare Parts? Well, uh, yes. Cherry picked the best ideas out of it and then executed poorly on the television screen. Mm. That's what they did with uh, Rise of the Cybermen. Yeah, look, we've said this before, Mark, and it was very easy to agree with this particular one. You know, stories like, say, Earthshock or Tomb or The Tenth Planet are very good for what they are, but when you think about the essential nature of the Cybermen, a bunch of intergalactic locusts, as the Doctor says in Revenge... Um, you know, hell-bent on surviving at any cost, willing to give up their essential humanity in in a vain pursuit of immortality. I mean, in the end, they're not even Mondasians anymore. It's the artificial intelligence embedded in their skulls that is imposing a crazed ideology on any humanoids that they can kidnap and and, and transform against their will. But they, the TV show misses out on this again and again and again and again. And I don't know whether they're afraid to go, you know, to, to look that horror in the face or it's just easier for them to just go down, oh, they're robots and we'll just go with that. Big deal. I think the closest they got to spare parts type territory was the last um, Moffat two-parter, the Capaldi one that should have finished off his reign. Uh, where Bill has been converted into a Cyberman. It's a level down from the, the audio horror that was um, presented, especially the Yvonne scene. And I haven't heard the spare parts in years, but I do clearly remember that scene because it was quite uh, moving. World Enough in Time. And Dr. Falls. They've sort of been closest to spare parts. I mean, that, those two stories were much as much in love with the um, the dance between the two masters as it, as it was with um, you know examining um, Bill's fate. So... Yeah, you are right. Moffat does come closest, but I still think spare parts for its visceral nature and just the, the sheer patheticness of you know the fate of just about everyone in that story uh, and the sense of doom and inevitability that, 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 that you know hangs over it like a, a funeral shroud um, puts it just you know a nose in front of, say, the, those two Moffat episodes. Now, Mark, uh, our friends from Spacefall, a Blake's 7 podcast, 
Uh, the, the monsters there behind the microphones have posited this question for you. Twice Upon a Time was a lovely tribute to the first Doctor. I leave it in your capable hands, mate. I know it's bloody Dave doing that. <laughs> <laughs> he can hide behind many Twitter handles. Is it a sock puppet? I don't know, but it's bloody Dave Kitchen. <laughs> So let me compose myself for a minute. Om party, omnicrom. All right, okay. Okay. Twice Upon a Time was not only the greatest regeneration story since Case of Androzani, but also introduced the greatest doctor of the modern series. But for me, the icing on the cake was a frighteningly accurate portrayal of the first doctor by David Pradley, where Richard Herndl died of shame shortly after his performance in The Five Doctors, and William Hartnell couldn't be bothered to turn up as he knew in his heart of hearts that not only has David Bradley surpassed his portrayal, but it has eclipsed it to the point where the BBC now considers him to be the genuine article and is now the first Doctor in situ. Not only was it Stephen Moffat's greatest work on the series, but the way he captured the character of the first Doctor, and particularly the hilarious smack bottom line, was extraordinary. I've often thought that Hartnell's greatest performance, if I can say that, was in the Aztecs, but Bradley put his rotting bones back in his coffin with his nuanced portrayal and a vocal delivery, certainly not a stilted robodoc. Again, another hack podcaster called him upon seeing the trailer for this magnus opus. I've watched this true classic Rob 34 times, and I now know, nay, comprehend, the real reason why the BBC wiped most of season three of the Hartnell era. They were so embarrassed by Hartnell losing his marbles and they thought to themselves, you know what, in the future, we can get somebody in to really do justice to the role and the material. So let's burn all these episodes so no one in Wigan can find them. And then we can re-record it with another actor who at least can remember his lines. That was the true reason why 10th Planet 4 was junked as they knew it would be done again properly in 2017. David Bradley's first Doctor has been extensively used by Big Finish, a company you can count on for recasting long dead actors in very few and special circumstances. And he continues to delight audiences in Time Rift and wasn't cut out like Captain Thumper and the upcoming BBC 100 Celebration Special. So just like in Episode 7 of Dalek's Master Plan, let's raise a champagne glass to the new original, you might say, and unlike the other two fake First Doctors, reign supreme forever. Raise a glass, mate. Raise a glass. <sighs> Jesus Christ, that was hard. <laughs> our fans are cruel, Mark. Our fans, our listeners... They profess to loving us, but really, they hate us. The worst thing is we've got pages of this stuff to get through, so we'll definitely have to <laughs> slot in another one. Oh, well, at least another three, I think. Let's just recover from this interesting interlude, shall we? So, Rob, the next statement slash scenario slash question slash statement I'm going to put forward to you is this. From DJ Alpha T Scarfunk Soul Beats. Death in Heaven is great, and the Cyber Brig needs his own spin-off show. DJ, you fucking son of a bitch. Well, what can you say? Now, Mark, um, if I was actually at home, I'd be in the back corner screaming, I can't do it, I can't do it. <laughs> Death in Heaven is great, Mark. It is great in the same way that closing a door on your penis very violently is great. I love doing that. The sadomasochism involved in doing that is fantastic. And watching Death in Heaven, so much pain, so much pleasure. I mean, the way that Moffat has structured that story and has used the Brigadier's corpse to bring back the, the, just the touch of the 60s and the 70s. As I was watching Nicholas Courtney today in, uh, in, in The Invasion, and I was thinking to myself, you know what? Put those rotting remains into, into a steel carcass, and that man will never be better as an actor, and show it, so it proved. I mean, all they had to do really was just draw a moustache on that faceplate, and it would have been Nicholas Courtney come back to life. I mean, the salute, Capaldi salute. I mean... Peter Capaldi, as a long-term fan, he who almost led a coup that took over Doctor Who fandom in the 1970s, he must have loved when he was sitting at that table read, just open it up and go, oh, you're bringing back Nicholas Courtney as the cyber brick. This is the best idea I have ever heard. I'm on board with this, Stephen Moffat. It's fantastic. And like Capaldi, I'm on board with this. The Death in Heaven is a magnificent story, bringing back and treating with the utmost respect 
Nicholas James Courtney. I don't know whether James was his middle name, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> he was treated with love, respect, tenderness. The Courtney estate was all on board with this. I could hear him in the background behind the camera going, yeah, 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 you do it for Nick, do it for Nick's son, because we wanted it, they wanted it, everyone wanted this to come back. And the fact that Moffat listened to the fans, it was like a heavenly chorus scored by Murray Gold, just drenched in love and admiration for this magnificent story, which encapsulated the very best about the Brigadier. His stoicism, I mean, he said nothing, so he was very quiet. His military uh, demeanour, he saluted like you wouldn't believe. And and the mere fact that, that Moffat saw the uh, the merchandising opportunities for uh, you know the Tin Brigadier to have his own spin-off. I, I don't understand what's gone wrong with the fact that that has never occurred. I mean, we had the Sarah Jane Adventures and we had Torchwood and we had Class, but there was nothing. I don't understand why there has not been a, 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 a spin-off. It, it would be the middle Mickey of the 21st century, Mark. <laughs> you know, Nicholas Courtney is middle Mickey for the 21st century, and I don't understand why this hasn't happened. The kids of today, those lovely, woke, tweeting little fuckers, they deserve Nick Courtney. They deserve him more than they deserve anything else in life more than food more than water more than love they need tin nick courtney in their life rattling around in that tin suit saving them from their own selves saving them from the fact that they're going to be taken away and at the back and shot when the revolution comes because god damn it nick courtney <laughs> is there for you he's there for me he's there for fandom and he's there for doctor who more importantly he's there for Stephen moffat because one night one day Stephen moffat is going to wake up and there's going to be a fan in the tin suit with nick courtney hate your guts in <laughs> inscribed across the front of it and he's going to smash an axe into his head and you know what it's gonna be fantastic what about death in heaven mate you love it oh i love it mate i can't get enough of it i watch it every day i inflict it upon myself is it better than horror fang rock i can't stand the confusion in my mind (laughs) (laughs) when you were reading out that diatribe rob two things came to mind you could have the tv show that should have been the iron patriot investigates you know how he says metal mickey Mm -hmm. could have been metal nicky (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> flying through the air. Oh, what a missed opportunity, Mark. Me or Nikki. You know what? Painting a moustache on his fa- on the metal face mm. would be no more or less realistic than the moustache that Courtney is sporting in uh, The Invasion. That is one very strange piece of uh, fabric. That's all I can say. Freddie Mercury actually saw that in the, uh, in, when it was on transmission. He goes, you know, in a couple of years' time, I'm going to grow a moustache like that. And so it was. How do you feel after that, Rob? I feel lighter, Mark. Yeah. A great weight that has been on my shoulders for four or five years has just been lifted. I feel, I feel free. There was something missing, though, the desk thumping. Uh, well, this flimsy desk, which is circa 1974, <laughs> uh, it's mainly balsa wood by the looks of it. Um, I'm afraid I don't want it to be kindling just yet. Not yet? Not yet, mate, not yet. The delightful chaps at Doctor Who Gives a F*** <laughs> podcast have said to you, Mark, um, at Big Finish should really do more spin-off audios and insert River Song into all of them. I genuflect in your direction and gracefully leave the scene. Big Finish's output for the last you know, 20 years has been limited, I should say. Uh, the range is pretty small. They don't really do many stories at all. And when they do do the stories, they really sort of focus very tightly on the established Doctor Who TV canon. They don't really sort of branch out much. However, there is one thing missing in the Doctor Who range that they are producing at the moment. In fact, every range they're producing, and that is a character of River Song. The wonderful creation you can hold in the same regard as, say, Sherlock Holmes, Batman, Margaret Thatcher even. <laughs> River Song is one of those characters that when you watch her on screen, your heart doesn't just sink and you put your head in your hands and go, why, why, why? Actually, it's the opposite. I jump for joy. I race around the room like I did when I saw the Sidemen and Nurshock all those years ago and every word she says and the, the acting is astounding i mean really if you put meryl streep as river song no comparison between alex kingston's uh, portrayal knocks it out the park every time and i totally agree i actually think river song should not only be inserted into every audio a big finish are doing and every audio they have got planned for the next 40 years but actually insert her cgi like they did with clara into every classic doctor who episode can you imagine the Aztecs when the Doctor is talking about his engagement? River Song pops up. Oh, no, you don't, sweetie. I'm already married. <laughs> Planet of the Spiders when the third Doctor is dying. A tear, Sarah Jane. River Song pops up. Oh, no, sweetie. Forget Sarah. You can cry over me now. And then pop off. All those key moments in the show's history. Tom Baker falling off the telescope. When they're doing the, the flashbacks. And all of a sudden... Adric doesn't say the last Doctor. River Song says Doctor. Can you imagine that, Rob? 
can you imagine how heightened that Tom Baker regeneration scene would be with with River Song being inserted in there? The five doctors. Actually, it should be the five doctors and River Song when the doctors all come together at the end. They're all trying to overpower Perusa. All of a sudden, River Song comes along. Hold on, sweeties. Uh, bit of a menage a trois here. Some sort of witty line like that. How good Rose would be. Forget Rose, just call it River Song. And basically, she just takes over. So every, every episode of the modern series, and in fact, every episode of the classic series, could be improved with River Song in there. Even the missing ones. I mean, how much more interesting would the audios be with, say, the Highlanders if, if River Song turned up? With the audio books, don't get Annika Wills and Peter Purvis. You get Alex Kingston to do the whole lot. So actually, Rob, completely agree with those guys. They should go back and do special editions of all their stuff stories are done before and put river song in everyone especially spare parts mate you know uh, how much more elevated was spare parts be with river song in there <laughs> sweeting around and uh having a diary out saying oh this hasn't happened yet and spoilers it would just make things so much better and in fact the restoration team should be doing with the blu-rays now is basically having a river song cgi option so river song can be inserted everywhere into those episodes just to make it flow a lot better flow like a river really mm. I can only think, Mark, that uh, the five river songs is the way to go. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> actually, Tom and the Rani would be actually pretty good with river song. Replace the Rani, Tom and the river song. Go get the Rani dressing up as river song. I don't know how you've, how you've managed to get through that, Mark, without vomiting. It's, I'm surprised. Uh, what can I say, Rob? Sometimes you have to go down the well of the depths of hell and hopefully come out okay on the other side. I hate, hate Mark to uh, foot the bill for your therapy coming up, but um, look, good luck with being on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean coming up? <laughs> and the worst thing is, as I said, Rob, is we've got pages of the stuff to do. So what we'll do is um, definitely slot a, a couple episodes of these next year because, uh, frankly, I've, I've enjoyed hearing Rob squirm and I know Rob has enjoyed hearing me basically demolish every value <laughs> and thought I've held sacrosanct in my entire life and just basically trash them. Yes, we do anything for our fans. Anything. Except ask for money. And speaking of that, it's now time for... You've got mail. And friends, welcome to our letters section, where those people who actually like us have communicated with us in some warm and fuzzy tones. Now, uh, merchandising maestro Alan Challenger writes, uh, Impressive episode, boys. Now, that episode, Mark, was... 1981, dragged from the archives, which seems to have gone down very well indeed. Thank you to everyone who's listened, and apparently there's quite a few of you. Aaron goes, I am impressed that Rob's dedication to the earlier years of Doctor Who is so strong that his side of the dialogue faithfully contained hiss on the audio, (laughs) usually reserved for multi-generation VHS bootlegs. Thanks, Aaron. I was very much getting nostalgia for Wheel in Space 3, where the bootleg is good enough for the audio dialogue to be clear and understandable, but still has the warm background hum that early tape traders came to know and love. Well done for subliminally invoking these highly nostalgic happy memories. And what you talked about was pretty good too. Thanks, Aaron. I think, Mark, uh, I may have had the setting on the back of this microphone incorrect because... um, there shouldn't be too much background hum uh, with this particular episode. So apologies to everyone who had to endure that. Mark did a remarkable job uh, removing as much of it as possible. But uh, yeah, it, um, I do apologise. I'm still trying to get to grips with this microphone I bought. Thanks, Aaron. That comment reminded me of going to early Doctor Who Club of Victoria meetings and trying to watch some old black and white stories where people used to shove their tape recorders <laughs> in front of the speakers. If only they had the, uh, the COVID... Um, microphone uh, extenders that they do these days they could have done it from the safety of their seats without having to lumber forward yeah exactly and i wouldn't have that television obscured by bloody mm. tape recorders all around looking like a skyscraper <laughs> set in the middle in the foreground of 10th planet uh. part four guy lambert says again of our last podcast there are so many bits of this that had me laughing out loud and at one point i was in tears giggling like a child one of the funniest and funnest podcast episodes ever thank you very kind thank you guy we actually did have a lot of fun recording that i again recommend recording that in a car with very low oxygen levels <laughs> it just seems a lot funnier and you just burst into hysterics yes again sorry kit based off that regional new south wales have approached rob and myself to read out the funeral notices on local radio there as a result of our <laughs> kit peddler obituary rob strap yourselves in son we're going off to orange <laughs> fine fellow uh, or person at least on uh, on twitter a uh, seven up 
uh, says, caught up with this on Friday, uh, hugely entertaining and, li- and literally had me in tears at one point as I was laughing so much at your banter. Had to briefly pull over as I was driving at the time. That's a clear warning to everyone. Don't drive and listen to our podcast. It's clearly uh, a happy way to die. Uh, a great positive end to a very busy week. Thank you both. Thank you, 7up. Thank you very much for that. Great fun to record. And uh, don't worry, we've got uh, 1982 to look forward to. I'm uh, clawing my way for the uh, old CTs and some other archive treats. And uh, we'll bring you all the best news from 1982 and the music as well. Because that's when it gets really good, Rob. So we'll, mm. uh, we'll definitely talk about this. Now, we've been uh, corrected, Rob, by a couple of people. Mm. Uh, Doc Hume of Diddly Dumb and also Jed Sweeney, Khan the Catters. Actually, John didn't do particularly well last year, did they, really? No, and they won't do any good next year either, is my tip. Oh, really? But we'll see. Mm. I've seen into the future, Mark, and it, it isn't related to Geelong at all. Oh, God. Unfortunately. I think it may slip it into Port Phillip Bay. But uh, look, you know, <laughs> don't tell anyone that, okay? Don't tell anyone. Cardinia Park, <laughs> underwater. <laughs> And uh, what does Jed say, Mark? He says, Bradford is in Yorkshire, although there is a Bradford in Wiltshire. Bedford is the location of the Dalek mine, and it's just north of Luton in Bedfordshire, just up the Thames link. Uh, yes, I've had a few um, uh, compatriots from the uh, from the old country getting back to me and mm. saying, mate, it was actually uh, Bedford, not. So I apologise yes. for all our UK listeners. I've, although I think this episode has been punishment enough, really. So let's just, let's just call it quit, shall we now? <laughs> Yes, we're all even now. Now, that's down to my lack of knowledge about UK geography. Uh, Apparently, it's an island, but other than that, I don't know anything. Usually, we do a Christmas episode end of the year. We've got a few scheduling conflicts happening. This is other stuff going on in our lives. So, unfortunately, we're going to have to delay that episode until January next year or reconvene. I am planning on doing a bit of a New Year's Eve episode. That'll be on the feeds. But in terms of our big one early next year, just because it's chaotic at the moment. Mark said... uh, there's, there's a lot of things happening at the moment uh, and it's just it, scheduling wise uh, particularly for me is nigh on impossible so I mean I do regret it uh, because I really enjoy uh, recording in the uh, in the in the shadow of Christmas but um, you know family and other stuff comes first so definitely we're looking to a January uh, episode but uh, as they uh, as they said in the classics stay tuned if we don't speak to you before then wish you all a very happy Christmas and New Year and Uh, Again, thank you very much for your listenership and downloads and your interactions and staying with us. Thanks to you, Rob. It's um, it's always been real and we will be back next year. Hopefully this flux works its way through my system. Good luck with that, Mark. I I, I do worry for your health as as your body prepares itself to be purged of uh, the infection. It's been a great deal that uh, people do tune in on a regular basis as and when we get episodes out. So I look forward to uh, 2022 uh, with no Omicron and no lockdowns and uh, a more happier uh, world, to to, to be frank. Let's be honest, we all need a bit of a respite for the last two years of complete Omni shambles. (laughs) True story. Let's hope uh, next year's a lot better for everyone. Take care of yourselves out there and we'll speak again in the new year. Ciao. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with with you again soon.